0: Welcome to the Natural Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Join us as we interview expert clinicians, researchers and wellbeing experts from around the world and explore the evidence and application of complementary medicine in global healthcare. The following podcast is intended as professional information for integrated practitioners and as such must not be taken as medical advice. Patients are expressly directed to seek appropriate care from a suitably qualified practitioner. Hi everyone, thanks so much for your company. Joining us today again is Carolyn Ladowski. She's a naturopath and a PhD candidate at UTS Sydney, and she's studying how different types of folate affect recurrent miscarriage. Welcome to Natural Medicine Podcast, Carolyn. How are you?
1: I'm well, Andrew, thanks so much for having me again.
0: Uh, great to be chatting again. so um, so firstly, um, tell us a little bit about your career as an atropath and how you got interested in studying and helping people to manage the SNPs that they're born with.
1: Mm, it's a good question and it actually started when I I first left um, college and started out as an naturopath. And I was doing Rachel Arthur's mentoring program. And she said, quite rightly, you know, we really need to understand bloods. So we did a lot of work on understanding the bloods. And I had, I used to see quite often people that would have an elevation in their folate levels. And I I thought to myself, why, why do they have high folate? So I'd ring the lab and they'd say well they're having a lot of leafy green vegetables and i thought no nah, that doesn't actually fit so i i then talked to my professors and and doctors i even had a meeting with a doctor up down the road from us in the clinic and said look why would someone present with a high folate and they said oh it's good it's it means they're having a lot of leafy greens and i thought that's not the answer so I was at a conference in Melbourne and a doctor from Adelaide was presenting and she just made an off-the-cuff comment that high folate was related to MTHFR and I thought, oh, what is MTHFR? So when she got off the stage, I made a beeline for her and said, what is MTHFR? I need to know. And she said, you're going to have to Google it, but it's a gene that regulates folate. And so I became absolutely obsessed and I read everything. I used to sit here till three or four in the morning and my husband would think, what are you doing? And I go, I've, I'm just, I've, I've got to keep researching. So I read everything there was at the time and we didn't have methylfolate back then. No. So I used to bring it in for, for myself from the US and I used to hand out samples to these people that had the high folate and they they usually had a cardiovascular family history they often had a recurrent miscarriage history and they had high homocysteine and i thought okay let's see what happens so when i gave them these funnily enough their folate levels came down and i thought that's weird okay it came down and then they started to say and we feel better and my pregnancy's better, and this and that. Anxiety's less, and I don't get as sick, and my immune functions better, and all of this stuff. And I thought, okay, and that's when I started to see the family history. I would then check for MTHFR, and I'm going back 2010 when, at the time, it was allowed through Medicare, and we sent all our doctors, all our patients back to their doctor to do MTHFR and the doctors would say, oh, okay, because like, I really didn't know what it was. So they would get MTHFR tested and they come back and the, the patient would say, well, what's the result? And the doctor either didn't know how to read the result and they certainly didn't know what it meant. So then they come back to us then they went to the AMA and said, Hey, we don't know what this is. Why are we being asked to get it tested? Because by that stage, we were asking thousands of people to get tested for it. So instead of saying, all right, this is legitimate, there it's a biochemical pathway, we need to actually educate doctors. The standard um, response was just tell them it doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's yeah. what started me on MTHFR. And then it morphed into other genetics, obviously, in the methylation cycle and then neurotransmitter and fertility. And so it just became this bigger and bigger pie that gives us the most amazing patient outcomes. You
0: you know what I'm picking up straight from the, the get go of what you said when people would say, oh, they're just eating a lot of leafy green vegetables, right? Hang on. That's you, you get a reference range for each analyte that you test for, mm. and that reference range is based on "quote unquote" normal, i.e., yes. what's a normograph, what's yes. a normal spectrum. Are they going to tell me that they did not provide for vegetarians in that cohort that they <laughs> that they um, said were "quote unquote" normal for normal range? It, right from the get go, it doesn't make sense.
1: Yes and the problem was too that if you rang the lab and said what exactly are you testing you know what they used to say no. yeah folate metabolites and i said yes but which ones yeah is it is it tetrahydrofolate is it folic acid is it methylfolate what what are you actually testing and they couldn't tell me they just said metabolites
0: Unless you're speaking to an expert in a certain area, it's exactly the same with uh, LDL subfractions. Unless, unless you're speaking with somebody from the sanitarium Adventist hospital in uh, Warunga or Tarumura, Um mm. you ask a normal pathology what LDL subfractions are, they won't know what you're talking about. No. Even though they can take the test and send it to Sonic. Um, but anyway, we're getting off track. Andrew's getting off tracky. Um <laughs> The you also mentioned pregnancy symptoms as well. Her, it, does your experience tell you that um supplementing or teaching people to use folates versus folic acid, even from food sources, that they actually ha- um, improve their symptomatology during pregnancy? Like, you know, um uh hypergravidorum nausea pre- in pregnancy. Come on.
1: Yeah, hyperemesis.
0: Hyperemesis, thank you, gravidorum. Um
1: well, not Even- necessarily just in pregnancy, Andrew. I would say Ooh. general health across the board, irrespective of pregnancy, many oh. of them felt way better. Okay. Anxiety less, mood better, stress response better, immune function. I mean, we look at someone who constantly gets ill all the time. One of the first things we do is see if they've got MTHFR because their methylfolate actually if it's low, will affect their immune function. So there's so many knock-on effects from the methylation perspective that you've got to consider that these people were deficient and then they were being given folic acid as a supplement and they were given folic acid in food. And so what we now know is that if that folic acid elevates and can't, can't be metabolized It's actually causing a pseudo-MTHFR deficiency in its own right. We also know that the elevation in folic acid, which I believe is what we were seeing back in the day, it has effects on the uptake of methylfolate both into the brain and the placenta.
0: So, so. Can we just go back and, and forgive me for sort of backtracking right to the beginning and talking about basic biochemistry? I get that most people out there will know this, I understand, but from just to in, um, to in, uh, what do you call it to entertain me, if we think about folic acid versus folinic versus MTHF, and then you've got the accessory nutrients, you know, biopterin, you've got uh, trimethylglycine, glycine. Um, sulfate, B6, pyridoxal 5-phosphate. Can you, I know this is going to be really hard to sort of put this audibly, but can you give us a brief rundown of how the COGS work, what nutrients are important and what what percentage of the population are affected by them? This is like a 20 question thing. I'm sorry.
1: That's all right. So, if you look at the metabolism differences in the in the folates, that's probably the most important thing because when someone has folic acid, 100% it has to be metabolized through an enzyme called dihydrofolate reductase. Now, research says that 200 to 300 micrograms is all that that enzyme will deal with. So if you consider the leading prenatal, most um, multivitamins have it got got well in the US. It's about a thousand micrograms, but here it's eight five, between five and eight hundred micrograms that will typically be in there. So w- the question is, what happens to that five hundred that cannot then go through this DHFR enzyme? Now, if you've got the more folic acid you have, the more that DHFR is inhibited which means that you don't get the conversion to tetrahydrofolate and you don't get the conversion all the way down to the last step which is the mthfr gene that converts to methylfolate as a side chain you've got folinic on the side there and 5,10 methylene tetrahydrofolate goes to into a side chain that needs to be metabolized and with the help of SHMT and B6, it's metabolized back. So this is what I've always said. If you've got a methyl tetrahydrofolate deficiency due to MTHFR, using folinic doesn't necessarily help you because you still have to convert it to methylfolate. And if methylfolate is the only biologically active form that the brain uses and the placenta uses, then you know how then important MTHF is, right? And then you know how important it is to identify people who have a, say, a 70% down regulation because of their MTHFR deficiency. Then you've got to look at uptake. Now, even if you're making methylfolate okay, you still need B12 and you still need zinc to get it into the methionine cycle and then you've got all your cofactors for methionine cycle to make SAMe, and that's everything from, you know, potassium to zinc to um, trimethylglycine. You know, it's all these things that then get, as you say, the cogs going. And then you've got to dissipate it all and spread it out, and that's where, you know, all your neurotransmitters come into play if you're not getting rid of your homocysteine, then you're going to have a buildup and all methyltransferases are inhibited anyway. So it, it's a, it's a real interplay at one of the first questions. I, I break it down to three questions. One, what is the capacity of the patient to make methylfolate in the first place? Two, hmm. what is the capacity of that person to then take it up into the methionine cycle? What, what is deficient? And then three, what is happening with the CBS pathway that then may be affecting methylation? Because if that, and quite frankly, that's usually where most chronically ill people present with the problem in the first place. You know, multiple chemical sensitivities, um, detox issues, toxicity, taurine deficiency, citric acid cycle deficiency, it all comes out of that CBS. So they're all intertwined
0: but you've got key questions to ask. Right. But I mean, there's so many cogs, sorry about the word again, to to take note of, and certainly not one thing. Very hard to treat with one thing when you're looking at a patient in front of you that's got usually multiple issues. Um, But thank you so much for taking us through that because I know that you're the expert on it. So let's get back on track about what we were originally going to talk about. That's your trial. Now, you're doing your PhD Um, trial um, on recurrent miscarriage. Tell us a little bit about the trial and why choose that topic rather than, you know, for instance, cardiovascular risk, that's really important as well.
1: Yes. I think from my perspective, what has really impacted me the most in my career to date was dealing with women who had had not one, not two, but sometimes six, seven, and eight miscarriages. And they're just being told it's a numbers game, go home, keep trying, and there's nothing we can do to change the outcome. And I just don't believe that. I Like in my heart of hearts, I do not believe that because I have got 13 years experience with women who have said that to me and then they go on to have Successfully have not one, two, sometimes three or four kids with no help, no IVF, no assistance other than optimizing their folate and the surrounding nutrients. So I think if you've got 23 million people that are miscarrying and a percentage of those are going on to miscarry again and again and again, there's this area of hopelessness because they're made Mm. to feel that there is nothing that can be done and just keep on going. And that really makes me sad because we know that we can have an effect on recurrent miscarriage and the problem is that no one else knows outside Mm -hmm. this small community that know this. And so it's not okay for women to be sent home just told keep going, keep trying, keep doing the same thing. And isn't that the idea, the definition of insanity? doing the same thing every single time and expecting a different outcome and these women are not insane they're just lacking the advice and the knowledge from the people that are um, giving them that advice to do it differently and we have to change it
0: it's certainly be driven insane by the the lack of uh of investigation by practitioners who are in control of this i thought it was really interesting some years ago i think it was well five years ago or something there was a trial at, um, was it a trial? No, it was, I think it was more of an opinion piece um that came out saying uh n- natural medicine and supplements had no benefit in fertility management. So this is just despite major fertility clinics embracing for- natural medicine, indeed some of the expert practitioners that they liaise with um, in both Sydney and Melbourne especially. Um, I think that's a really funny thing to say. I thought it was, I I suspected something, uh, um, some other agenda there right from the outcome, right from the get-go, sorry. Well, Um,
1: Andrew, I've been presenting at a lot of medical conferences since I started my PhD, and I've got to say to all the prakis out there, you know, it's sad that you you have to do a phd to get a voice but that's the nature of it and but this this year beginning of this year is the first time we've actually got mainstream medical practitioners asking the question should we be using a different form of folate right well, and so is- that's exciting it, you know and if we can if we can now work towards changing the language, and even if it's I'm talking to New South Wales Health, just to change the language and say take folate and then the practitioner and the patient and everybody else could decide what form, but just change it to folate. And we just published a, um, a paper in Nutrients which looked at the intake of folic acid prenatally and through pregnancy. And what we found is that no one gets enough folate to support a pregnancy from just food. Therefore, they have to take a supplement. So if they have to take a supplement, the question is what type? And what we found is that any woman in pregnancy that is taking a prenatal multivitamin with folic acid, they are exceeding, the upper toxicity level deemed safe by the Institute of Medicine, which is 1,000 micrograms. Now, that means, well, and that toxicity level has nothing to do with metabolism. It only has to do with the masking of a B12 deficiency. That's the only level of is this safe question. Right. It, It doesn't talk about are we actually doing something harmful by taking too much? and not metabolizing folate properly.
0: Um you said something quite surprising to me and that was that nobody ate enough greens basically. Yep. To get enough folate. It doesn't seem right from an evolutionary standpoint for humans. What's happening there? Are we talking about like <clears throat> multiple chemicals in the, in our food chain that are taking up folate or like it doesn't ring true. What's happening there?
1: Well, you look at, and this included, Andrew, folic acid fortification, right? Right. This included folic acid fort, So it was a combined folic acid fortification and leafy greens and et cetera. Are we getting enough for 500 micrograms? And the answer is no.
0: Okay. So could it be then that the folic acid fortification rather than folate intake from green leafy vegetables that the folic acid was actually acting as an anti-nutrient?
1: Probably not at the dose that people were taking it in their diet because Mm. the average was 197 micrograms from their diet from fortified foods. Mm. And so what we're saying is people did not reach 300 micrograms in their diet from leafy green vegetables. Wow. Wow. So we know that the DHFR two hundred to three hundred. so i I wouldn't imagine it becomes an anti-nutrient um, unless you go above that in the food. And so this is this is something that I think we we struggle with in a way because we can we can actually look at why folic acid fortification was introduced in the first place. And it was for those poorer communities, where and it was interesting, a lot of them were that Mexican community. And they were looking at those communities saying, well, they they don't have they're not wealthy enough to be eating a lot of leafy green vegetables, and they can't afford a, a supplement. Therefore, they're having a lot of um, neural tube defects. So they fortified the food. And there's absolutely no question that it is reduced the incidence of neural tube defects. But the problem is, there's mandatory fortification but there's also voluntary fortification so there's no regulation as to how much folic acid is put in other foods outside oh, awesome. the mandatory bread flour etc and so this is where for example in australia we were only ever meant to get 100 micrograms a day we're getting closer to 200 every right. man woman and child so this becomes then a problem because if adults are 200 to 300 micrograms is the ideal metabolism, what is, what's that doing with kids that wake up in the morning and have breakfast cereal fortified with folic acid, go to a school with a sandwich fortified with folic acid, and everything they eat out of a packet, which is pretty well everything they eat, is fortified. So we have a real problem that there's no restriction on the amount that can go in food if it was kept at 200 there probably wouldn't be any problem but we have to make sure that people are not getting excess and they're not getting more by taking a multivitamin or prenatal with folic acid
0: yeah so that's that seems to be the issue that you know you can get up to the 200 possibly 300 from food alone maybe more if you're eating a lot of cereals but it's the supplement that pushes you over because Always. there's no yeah right, okay. Okay, um, I've got twenty questions written down here, Carolyn. So okay, go. <laughs> what what about what about instead of measuring for gene snips, what about measuring for the effect of how you're handling your genetic snips? So, for instance, looking at surrogate markers, not just folates in the blood, but let's say um um mavalonic acid or um homocysteine was a classic one can we measure those surrogates and can we get a clear picture from what's happening with our cycles or are we only getting one piece of the jigsaw with each of them
1: no uh, look I think homocysteine is a good marker because it gives you an indication that your methionine cycle is deficient in some way. But does it tell you that it's B12 or folate or trimethylglycine or B6? Probably not. Got it. But it does tell us that there's a problem and and you've got the ancillary inflammation and everything else that goes with that. And so I I think what a lot of researchers around the world are doing right now and I'm one of them because I'm about to embark on a, um, a literature review on unmetabolized folic acid. Is if we accept the premise, which I think is undeniable now, that anyone in a country that is fortified and take and or taking a folic acid supplement has unmetabolized folic acid in their blood. Every mum who has um, folic acid in their diet or is taking a prenatal multivitamin through pregnancy has unmetabolized folic acid in breast milk so the question becomes we know it exists we know unmetabolized folic acid is there the what we don't know categorically is what is the effect of that we know there's rising rates of Cancer. We know there's rising rates of autism. We know there's ri- rising rates of metabolic disease. And unmetabolized folic acid has been linked to all of that. Right. But it's so, nothing categorical.
0: So we have to tease apart um, rather than association causation. Um,
1: yes. And there's some really interesting research going on around the world in that area.
0: Oh, well, tell and, us about that.
1: I was just um, I was invited to go to Zurich to present my research to the folate researchers at Zurich University um, and they presented to me their research. And they're looking at how unmetabolized folic acid actually blocks the folate receptor and stops methyl folate getting into the brain and into the placenta. Now, that has massive implications. Because if methylfolate is the form of folate that the brain uses for memory and function and thinking and cognition, then, and we're reducing that, is that a cause of ADD, ADHD, autism, etc.? Right. It's possible. It's absolutely possible. Is the placenta or the inhibition of methylfolate into the placenta actually affecting the development and not only the mental development but you know whole health development of that child it's possible and so my theory is we don't want to be sitting here which is that amount of time it takes 20 years for research to hit clinical practice yep. i do not want to be sitting here in 20 years saying you know what we knew back then that unmetabolized folic acid was a problem and we did nothing I think if we should be preventative and we should be saying, because we know it's there for everybody and we know there's potential health implications, let's try and reduce it. Let's try and get rid of it. And then if we find out it's not an issue, great, fine, what have we done? All we've done is ask people to switch products and avoid folic acid or at worst, get off folic acid-based supplements.
0: You know, you know what I think is interesting is we didn't seem to have an issue at all with telling people about um, the efficacy, the better efficacy of pyridoxal 5-phosphate versus um, pyridoxine hydrochloride. There didn't seem to be this issue. But for some reason, folic acid, because there's food guidelines around it, mm. it's almost like a hot potato that nobody wants to touch. To me, it's no. really funny. And and, and- look, I, I put my hand straight up. I was one of those people, Caroline. I was one of the naysayers. I used to myself just barge my way through with 5, 10, 15 milligrams of folic acid, and I can still remember uh, that even with a marginal shift in homocysteine, the only thing that dropped homocysteine in this one famous patient of mine was trimethylglycine. Now, we didn't know about SNPs back then, mm. but it was just really interesting about that it was trimethylglycine. and it didn't come down to what our target would be. It was just down to a more acceptable level. I think it came down to nine or something. Uh, but it's just really interesting about there's this taboo thing about folic acid and folate's.
1: But I, I've gotta I've gotta ask the question why? I mean, mm-hmm. look, the, the really the only the only sticking point is that all the naysayers will say, but show me the evidence of a large randomized clinical trial that tells me folic acid um or methylfolate, sorry, prevents neural tube defects. I've got 13 years of experience to tell you not one of our patients has ever had a neural tube defect, ever. And so if that's, I mean, we've got, we've got papers that say metabolism-wise, methylfolate will increase folate levels as well as, if not better, and certainly quicker than folic acid. So if that's the case, why wouldn't they prevent neural tube defects? That seems to be the only negative. And then the other negative is, well, folic acid is cheap, it's more stable, and a lot of the um, pharmaceutical companies have it in it. I would hate to think that that is a key reason why people are anti-methylfolate? Is it just a cost? I'm sure if you would ask every single woman who's had a a recurrent miscarriage, would you be prepared to pay more to prevent a miscarriage? And I gather, I guarantee 100% would say yep.
0: Look how many scores of thousands they're spending, wasting, do I say that word, on IVF, you know, and how heart-wrenching that is for a couple to go through that, particularly yes. the guilt, the shame and stuff like that that is attributed to these women when they, you know, can't fulfill a normal function. Yeah. Um, that I'm saying quotation marks here to everybody who's listening and not watching, um, because it annoys the hell out of me about the the shame that is bestowed upon um, it is mainly women um that this that get blamed for this and or who carry this guilt. Uh Carolyn, can I ask, can I just say, I'm going to show you my piece of paper here, There's, <laughs> this writing all over it. So um, can I just ask, is there a cheap surrogate, um, surrogate marker that we might test for, which might give us clues that something is going awry and therefore to look further? Like homocysteine would be one, I get it.
1: Well, I think you've got to be looking at MTHR polymorphisms because if you know that you're homozygous and you've got a 70% down regulation in your methylfolate production and you're having multiple miscarriages, that's got to be the biggest clue that you've got.
0: Yeah. So just do the SNP test. Yeah. Do Um, the
1: SNP test. Yeah.
0: Can I also ask when we're talking about folates and um, giving these to patients, not many naturopaths would just give one supplement they'd look at a lifestyle and a regimen you know including possibly fish oil and avoidance of chemical toxins and things like that so to what um to what degree do we apportion risk or issues with uh, the mthf metabolism to these various problems like for instance toxins
1: yeah you
0: well, know what, what are they calling them now the forever chemicals i love that <laughs>
1: God. Well, part and parcel of um, MTHV polymorphisms is your detox pathways are downregulated anyway. So is it, you know, the chicken or the egg? It is a Is a long-term um, mthvar deficiency that's caused perhaps lack of glutathione, lack of whatever else, cysteine, um, is that part of the problem where they're more exposed? Look, I think... I don't think you can look at it um, singly, and this is where the, the trial I think is really unique, because we almost are, you know, you're you're basically saying, let's take everyone who's got a um, uh, who's had multiple miscarriage, let's put them all on a prenatal. We'll randomise A or B, but essentially, other than taking folic acid out of their diet, we're not giving them any other advice. And so I think it's a, it's an interesting concept to say, well, okay, if we get the success, we think we might from this, does it really say that that deficiency in methylfolate is one of the driving factors for this fertility issue? And does it have a knock on effect with toxicity? I mean, of course, you've got to, you've got to look at, you know all sorts of pollutants, and I was actually listening to a podcast this morning. You know, you can't. We're we we're, we're just surrounded by toxins at every yeah. level. I yeah. think one of the most dangerous, actually, is um, is mycotoxins because we mold mycotoxins are just, you know, absolutely screwing around with our hormones.
0: And
1: these, yeah. and they are and particularly on the eastern seaboard of Australia, um, like New Zealand, not you know, we look at what's going on in the news right now, these flooding events that people are just getting inundated and unfortunately they can't necessarily get out of it, so many people are exposed to these mould mycotoxins they don't even know it. Yeah. And so your glucuronidation pathway is getting jammed that's affecting your hormones and I think it's causing a whole lot of other issues. So there's not one thing. No, it's it's a big, it's, it's multifactorial.
0: For sure, for sure. Um, now, so you're doing your PhD, you're about to, I think you're going through recruitment now and you're just about to start the trial for TRUE for your PhD thesis. Um You've been gallivanting around the world, world, spreading your message. You've been invited to Zurich to present. Were you presenting there?
1: Yes, I was presenting my research there, and also in London.
0: Right. So, what what else are you doing?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the researchers at St Thomas's Hospital in London, we decided to collaborate on a literature review that we're about to undertake on unmetabolized folic acid. Because the researchers at St. Thomas's are of the same ilk that I am, in that mm. folic acid is not the way to go. And as you know, um, Britain has just had this huge hoo ha about folic acid fortification and they're about to start it. So, this is huh. a big oh. question for them. So, this is why they're really interested in the whole concept of unmetabolized folic acid and what does it do? You're right. Yeah, so I think there's um, so that's one thing. Um, uh, we're doing a, we're actually going to do as part of the PhD uh, a practitioner survey. So mm-hmm. we're going to ask GPs and fertility specialists what are their protocols, what do they do, what resources might they need to improve um, how they approach multiple miscarriage. You know, do they need specialist guidelines here in Australia and that will just help us give a bigger picture as to what do we need to do to change the status quo what what can we do to support the frontline people that are seeing these women all the time because um, you know I don't believe they like telling people to go home and not do anything and, and change yeah, anything nothing.
0: no yeah. no of course uh, there's been such a resistance with regards to testing for people's genetic SNPs. I, and I can still remember, you know, it was outright poo-pooed of absolutely no benefit whatsoever. And then it was like, oh, look, it's um, uh, it's only relevant in a very few situations. Now there's, the, you know, the few TV shows and, of course, then there's this, oh, yeah, but only in, under certain hands only guided by certain professionals and the funny thing about it is that the population the public is really going for it with mm. regards to this if nothing else than for finding out where their ancestry is from um but there's a lot of these 23 and mes out there as, as well um where do we go what what's our advice with regards to things like insurance though because I understand this is a bit of a Sticky mud sort of situation.
1: Look, it's not really. We we um. I decided that I wanted to get um, involved in a company that I knew was going to do the right thing by consumers and mm. by the law. So we. I started working with the girls at Smart DNA um, at the beginning of this year to get a report. Because don't forget. Smart DNA, well, smart DNA are one of the few that do not report on genetic SNPs that are disease-oriented SNPs. They only report on metabolic SNPs. And therefore, I believe there's a big distinction between disease-causing SNPs that, that, you know, unlicensed or or rather unregulated non-geneticists are doing versus metabolic Snips got it and if you say to me when do I use it I use it with every patient because the information that you can get from a gen you know that combination of genetics detailed case taking an organic acids test and bloods is phenomenal and right. you it can be life-changing for both you and the patient. And I do a lot of practitioner training in this area. And you know what I love? I love seeing their faces when they've finished the course and it's like, oh my God, this opens up a whole new realm of how I'm going to practice. Because regardless of what we think as naturopaths, we are still protocol driven and disease driven you know oh you've got diabetes what do you give you give chromium you give this you give that you're off you go and there are some um companies that teach the protocols and if the protocol doesn't work the the pracky has no idea where to go yeah whereas if you look at it from a genetics basis and you really understand what you're trying to work out it's phenomenal i'll give you an idea we had a a case the other day that I did as part of a mentoring group and this guy has 11 children and they live in Midwest USA and he's been sick for a long time his kids are not well and what we we did a detailed case history and we found out he had definite Um, genetic snips around histamine his ability to get rid of histamine was really compromised to the point where he's just an allergy you know hot hot wire all day every day and he's fighting this you know histamine come mast cell come inflammation every day of his life but what we believe triggered it is we went back to his family history And we looked at the fact that he has the PON1 gene. He's homozygous for PON1, which is how you get rid of organophosphates. He grew up, he was in utero when his mother was in the corn, living in rural cornfields sprayed with glyphosate. And he still lives in a glyphosate heavy crop dusting environment. Now, that was probably the key epigenetic trigger and so to work back from that and be able to unravel that is phenomenal and we've mm. we've only started with his case and in 3 weeks he's already feeling 60% better than he has and he's been struggling with this for 25 years
0: wow um Carolyn, can I just say I'm so impressed by the way that you don't just rely on SNPs, which you're famous for, but you don't just rely on them. You actually look at how those SNPs are affecting people by using the organic acids test, how they're functioning. Oh, absolutely. Because you get some people that will only do a SNP test, and then of course there has it's not just um, it's not infrequent, I should say, it's not rare that patients will throw up their hands and get really are concerned, overly concerned about their genetic SNPs. Um, you know, Denise Furness tells me of one instance where, during her trial uh, where she had somebody that was going to terminate a pregnancy because she was double, she was homozygous for one of the SNPs, I can't remember which, but um, with MTHF. And it's not about that. She said, whoa, hang on, let's look at how you're handling that you have the mm. SNP, but you're doing all of the right things, you're fine. So yes. it's really interesting, uh, and I'm glad to hear that you are testing about how those patients are handling those SNPs, how they're functioning.
1: Yes, because it becomes where I teach prackies is to identify where the environment and the genetics intersected. And what I mean by that is where was the trigger? What was it? Because if you can find that, you can usually work out what you've got to do. It Mm -hmm. might take you a long time if it's been there for a long time. But by identifying key triggers over his timeline, we were actually able to sit back and say, all right, this fits. Because look at your toxicity in your organic acids. Look at your histamine levels in your blood. His IgE was through the roof. So there was really there was really interesting things in, and it's, it is like a jigsaw puzzle that you can yeah. then take all the pieces off and you say, okay, what's the first thing? But I liken the genetics to potholes. If you identify a pothole that's in your lane, like if you're driving along a freeway, Andrew, and you have lots of potholes, it really doesn't matter how good the car is, you t- you will get damaged, right? The car will be damaged. Hmm. And environmentally, you'll it'll be made worse by storms and rain and everything else. They so just get bigger. But if I come up with my road crew and I plug up that pothole, you can have quite an old car. And as long as you put good petrol in it and look after it, it'll toodle along quite well. Yes, you might get some rain and hail that'll sort of get you out of your lane a little bit, but you'll come back. Mm. And that's how I feel the the genetics are. They're pot some of them are big potholes. And if you don't plug them, you will never get the resolution that the patient needs to continue on well. You're always just band-aiding.
0: Carolyn, there's so much to learn here. Now you've got a course, haven't you? I do. Tell us about that. How can people access your course?
1: The our um our practitioner? Yeah. We have um we have three practitioner training programs. One is the Institute. Methylation and Genomics Institute, where we do regular webinars to teach people about certain SNPs. So we might say, okay, PON1, good example. Um, What does it mean? What are the key SNPs? How is it infected environmentally, irrespective of whether someone has a SNP or not? What down regulates it? What up regulates it? And if you do see that, how do you balance it back out? What nutrients, what herbs? And then we have Q&As and all sorts of things for that. Then we have a Mastermind Plus, which is an intensive eight-week training program, which teaches practice right from word go how to view these SNPs and which ones are the most relevant and where to start in unravelling it because that's always the hardest thing. They Mm -hmm. can go and do a lot of research. They can know the SNPs inside out and back to front, but they actually don't know the clinical application at all. So it's it's showing them case studies and showing them how to approach it, and so we've now also got a workshop where we've done resources where it's almost like a um, it's like a step by step, you know, look at these genes and ask the question: Can they make folate? Look at these genes, and and so we've we've plotted it out to give prakis a roadmap because it's really hard when they first start. It's completely overwhelming. Mm, And mm. so we say, all right, what do you look for? And how do you view all the the tests you have? Because often the prakis, the naturopaths and the nutritionists, they're last resort, right? So people have been everywhere. And as you say, this whole genetics thing is driven by the patient. So I believe that the prakis that don't get it and don't understand it will be left behind because Consumers are sick and tired of not getting the answers they want and being put on medication, maybe unnecessarily, and no one is giving them a roadmap. And so by incorporating the genetics into your practice, you're actually saying, okay, let's let's look at why and how you got here. We can see where your genetics and your, your um, background has intersected and we think that these are the key things that have affected you. We know you've got some potholes, which we do have to plug, but let's look at where you are right now. And that's where the bloods and the oats and the other mycotox and all those tests yeah. come into play. So you can then step out really nicely a short, medium, and long-term plan because there's no point in talk, and you quite rightly at the very beginning said, you know, patients get overwhelmed by a practitioner sitting there and saying, well, you've got this snip and you've got that and you've got that and you've got to take this and you've got to do that for that. And you, We don't do that at all. Basically, we look at the genetics from our point of view and we say in three or four key sentences, this is where we believe your potholes are. This is what we believe environmentally is triggering what's going on and this is where you are right now. So right now, what do we need mm-hmm. to do? okay, we've got to fix those nu- nutrient nutritional deficiencies we've got. You've got to uh, you know, stop having histamine because you've clearly got a histamine problem. So let's put you on a low histamine diet. But then medium term, we know that you've got mycotoxins. So we've got to get rid of that mold exposure. And long term, you've got a really strong family history of cancer. So we want to stop you going there. And how do we do that? Well, we believe these three key key SNPs are going to be contributing to that. Your diet, your lifestyle, plugging up those potholes are going to put you in good stead to see if we can stop that
0: happening to you. Yeah, to, me to, yeah, to reduce that. And risk. that's
1: a really sensible program rather than sitting there saying, well, you've got this, this, and this. I'm going to give you this, this, and this, and bye. See you later.
0: Yeah. You, you know, just pursuant to my last rant on um, on uh, the the journey, if you like, from, of the acceptance of SNPs, for those people who don't, those orthodox practitioners who don't believe in the relevance of single nucleotide polymorphisms at all, I think are really not doing their patients a favour, forget about MTHF. What I'm thinking of is, okay, you have a really big issue with not just poor compliance but inefficacy of the triple therapy for helicobacter pylori. If you would only look at those patients' SNPs and those patients who require double the amount of isomeprazole, you would increase the efficacy of your medical orthodox treatment protocol. And this is what gets me. It it just gets me about I'm not anti-drug at all. I just like things to be more effective. And if we can use something...
1: Yeah. And if you've got a patient with a MAO att polymorphism, which means it's slow, and mm. you're giving them an SSRI, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah. But yeah. if you can identify that it's a dopamine deficiency and not a serotonin deficiency that's driving that depression, then, as you say, psychiatrists could easily prescribe the right meds rather than giving things that, that people say are worse.
0: First sorry, antidepressant medication is usually a 50-50 chance, a flip of a coin. Yeah. How about we reduce that to a you know 25% chance that you're going to get it wrong? Um, I mean, that's a well, you know, 75% I actually chance. Think, I'll take that.
1: Well, I actually think if you looked at the genetic SNPs around your dopamine, serotonin, GABA, everything else, I reckon you could get it 100% right.
0: Well, there you go. It's a big call there. There's another thesis.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no way. No way.
0: <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Everybody who's done a PhD that I've ever spoken to said, no, once I'm done with this, I'm, I'm never getting, and yet those people that enter into academia, they go, let me at it. What's the next one? And then they get other people involved there, which is their, their I due do course, like, I've like. got
1: to say, I do like the research. I actually mm. do like it. Mm. And if, if I hadn't sworn my husband to the fact that I would not do another one, um, I probably would like to um, keep it going. But um, because I think what I've seen is that we can actually affect change if we're doing the right type of research. And that's why we did that call out. It's really important that people aren't short-sighted in you know, saying, oh, well, I don't want a patient to get folic acid in in the randomization, but unless we do it, we're never going to affect change. So we've, we've got to start somewhere.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just a quick, sorry about continuing this, but just a quick call out. Cause I know that you're one of your clinical supervisors is Dr. Amy Steele. Um, and so I, I, like I know how her mind works to some degree and, um, And she will always say, let the research speak. Let the research guide you. It will be what will be. Don't interfere with it. Just let the research be. Who's your other clinic supervisor, though? I want to give a call. Vanessa Scarf. Vanessa Scarf. Vanessa's a
1: midwife, um, and she's a senior lecturer at the Midwifery School at UTS. And awesome brings a really lovely, beautiful perspective to what we're trying to do. Um, so it's it's just such a great group. I'm so fortunate to have the most amazing supervisors.
0: So I'll call out to those as well. Carolyn Ladowski, thank you so much for taking us through. I mean, this is a web. This really is. You know, as you talk about an eight-week intensive, we've just tried to cover something in an hour (laughs) or less than an hour. So thank you so much for what you've done today and and indeed for your, your work, your dedication to your patients and how they can avoid infertility issues or at least mitigate them. So thanks so much for taking us through this important work today.
1: Thank you, Andrew. You're welcome.
0: And thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will put as much research as we can in the show notes. It gets truncated, but there'll be more on the website. So bear with us. We'll put as much as we can uh, about Carolyn's courses as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll see you in another episode of Natural Medicine Podcast. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.